0: Oh. Identity and access management. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff, and that's Jim. Hey, Jim.
1: Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Pretty good. You? I'm good. I'm really excited about our guest today, uh, Frank. This guy, I've known him for a long time. I've known him since uh, my very earliest memories of the of my time in the IM industry, and uh, Frank Frank is a true thought leader, not only in IM but also in how to fend off allergies. He used to give me some great advice on how to not die from allergies in allergy season, and he knows his stuff. You know, Frank's also I would say he's a OG in the IM industry. He's my mentor and he's my friend. Um, one of my earliest memories in IM was a lunch date that we had. Um, I was at Ingersoll Ranch at the time. It was my CIO, who was my boss, and uh, another friend of mine from the company, and Gordon Eubanks, and Tom Neckel, and Frank. And uh, they, they were the posse from Oblix. And, you know, Gordon Eubanks, a, a real legend in this industry. and you know, hopefully Frank can just kind of reminisce on his times with with Gordon, but I thought that was just, you know, one of my most memorable moments in my career, and also just, you know, days all the way back to my early days with Frank. Um, Frank recruited me to Identropy. He coined a lot of really cool catchphrases like, cow's moo, and he was the driving force behind the Identropy culture. And the Identropy culture, if you know Identropy, that's kind of what we center our company on is making it a great place to work and really having a strong corporate culture. Um, in addition, while Frank was at Identropy, he built an identity service, identity as a service product called Squid Lifecycle. Um, that was a true passion of his and something that I think very few people get an opportunity to do in their career, which is kind of build a product like at that level. So, really excited that we have Frank here today and just. Um, Want well, to welcome to welcome him to the podcast. Thank you very much, Jim. What an honor. Thank you uh,
2: for that introduction. It's it's humbling, and you know it brings a lot of memories. Uh, do you remember, Jim, that in that lunch we, uh, I think we we carpool, and I was in the back seat of your car, and then I asked you if you own a dog. And then you say, well, that's very observant of you. And then it turns out that uh, it was a whole bunch of hair in the back seat where I was sitting. (laughs) Very
1: observant of you. What would make you think that now that you're covered in dog hair?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That definitely gave me something to think about in terms of allergies,
0: for sure. Well, Frank, thanks for joining us. I certainly appreciate it. I know we're going to be talking about uh, sort of the balance of convenience and security, which is something that I know that you're passionate about, and uh, we'll get into that. Uh, before we get too far along, though, um, I do want to mention an upcoming webinar uh, that uh, is going to be interesting for, I think, for everybody in the identity space. It's called Hacking Identity, the Good, Bad, and Ugly of identity, Identity-Centric Identity Security Controls. That's a mouthful. <laughs> With uh, the IDSA, ID uh, Security Defined Alliance, and Jared Brennan from SailPoint. And I mentioned that because Jared's actually going to be a guest of ours next week. So, Hopefully, you guys will check that out. And uh, it'll be on September 3rd at noon Eastern Time. You can find uh, more information on it at the idsalliance.org website. So, I want to give people a shout out for that before we dive into things here with Frank. Um, Our traditional first question, Frank How did you get into identity and access management? Why don't we start there?
2: Yeah. By the way, I must confess, I have prepared for this because I listened to some of your episodes. So, I sort of Thought about how it would answer that question. And I know Jeff that I believe you keep tallies on where people end up. So whether you know you found it or it found you, uh, it certainly found me. It was an accident. Um, my story is uh, I'm not gonna necessarily give dates, but I'll tell you that way back when I used to work at Sun Microsystems, um, there was this product called Sun, I, Sun Internet Mail Service or Server, Internet Mail Services. Sun, since was the acronym, and um, and this was a revolutionary new email server that was was you know taking over the enterprise at the time, and at the heart of it was this new technology that was up and coming called LDAP that allowed it to do very fast processing, quick resolutions of email addresses to, to different mailboxes and so forth, and so I became really enamored. Uh, by that technology and, and, and became obsessed. And so I started to learn and, and, you know, overnight became an LDAP expert. And little did I know that that was going to be the start of my journey. And so fast forward a few years, uh, maybe you could say a few decades, and um, and here I am still uh, very proud and, and, and passionate about the identity space. Um, you know, I always found that um, there's a parallel that I used to say um, that is, you know, everybody talks about Steve Jobs and Apple at the the convergence of technology and humanities and, and liberal arts and, and how that inspires design, etc. Um, I feel that identity is also at a frontier, is the convergence of access to systems and people who need access to those systems. And so for as long as there will be humans needing access to systems, there will be a job for someone
0: in identity. I totally agree. Um, and and I like identity because it's one of the areas where, you know, it's, there's a, there's a pretty good history on it, right. And a lot of different technologies, Um, but I joined it really kind of in the ops perspective, because at the time security was kind of seen as the no group, right. It was like, oh, firewall, no, can't do that. You know, that's going to be a problem. Whereas identity was more along the lines of figuring out how to solve the business needs. Right. We know, we know these applications are coming in. Um, I mean, you have to give people access to it. How can we do it securely, in addition to efficiently, and you know, with a good user experience, et cetera. So I'm I'm excited to have a conversation with you around the user experience um, because I'm a big, big, big believer in uh, in a good product, whether it's internal or external. And it hasn't always been that way. So I know we're going to get into that, um, and uh, that's that's really where I where I get really super interested in, especially on the identity side, is that user experience.
1: Yeah, you know when I. When I first met Frank, he was with the company Oblix, uh, which later became Oracle Access Manager. I think, Frank, you ended up moving over to Oracle as part of that transition. Um, But, you know, at the the time, I was thinking about access management, single sign-on. And I, I think it was Tom who made the statement, it's all about the identity. And it was like that was the early thinking of it's not just this single sign-on function is not just username and password; it's the identity, and that was that was leading thought at the time. I mean, you know, I think we take some of those early points for for granted now. It's like we take governance for granted now, but those weren't things that were talked about a lot back then. Correct, correct,
2: Jim, and, and that's you know, back in the day, I would say that identity as a space divided up along those two lines. And there was there were people who really specialized and had expertise in the access, you know authentication, authorization, uh, a little bit more of the, the runtime, run you know what happens when the user is clicking. Um, and then there was the other camp which I would say I belong to and Oblix altogether you know, really uh, differentiated on was the identity management. So how do you come to be in you know, how do you get uh, represented in the digital space and what processes need to occur? To make sure that you're properly set up before you show up in front, you know, the front door. And so, um, it was an interesting, you know, time because there were companies uh, that specialized in one space and they were quite successful, like Integrity, as an example. And then there were companies that specialized in the other problem, and you almost always needed to have a combination of the two. And then integration of the two uh, became quite
1: challenging. You know, I think another thought. Uh, Frank was that, you know, again, the kind of that 15, 16 years ago, you just took it for granted that the way to get into a system was you type your username and password. And I don't even think it occurred to us at the time that that was how broken that model was. And now we see how broken that model is. And I mean, you know, one of the things I love about our industry is the conferences, You know, one of the earliest conferences I was at was Digital ID World. And, you know, it's kind of like um, such a forward-looking industry. And it's one of those industries where new innovations are constantly happening and new companies are coming onto the scene and they're bringing new technologies. Uh, But it's been, you know, over 10 years that people have been making the statement that passwords are dead. I know you're working on a, a blog titled Eradicating Passwords. And I know if you're doing it, it's not just um, you're not just talking about it, right? You got a you got a game plan. So maybe talk to us a little bit about why you think it's so important to eradicate passwords, and then what what you're going to do about it. Yeah,
2: yeah. Thank you. And you know, this is sort of uh, I'll say a progression. Maybe let me let me context that a little bit here, uh, uh, Jim, because you know my journey has been quite interesting. So I started as an engineer. Uh, I, I worked in sales. Uh, by the time you and I met, I was, in fact, working at Oblix. And I had a, a combination of implementation slash consulting slash sales role. It was a hybrid. Um, and so it was very customer facing. Um, and it was really more around what happened uh, once you are trying to deploy the, the, the product, the technology to solve a problem. Uh, but then you know, as I progress, I move into product management. And then I started to look at the problem from a different point of view. Um, I was very much involved in the customer advisory boards, uh, for example, at Oracle. And so that gave me a perspective of the entire lifecycle of the technology, but more importantly, how does that work in, in the eyes of the customer? And what became clear to me is that we almost started to focus on the wrong areas, or we focused too much on certain areas of the problem. and then. I would say we accepted certain deficiencies as just the way they are, and in my you know retrospective view now, I'll say I would do that slightly different. You know, UX is not something that an identity practitioner should say, "Well, I don't know much about." Uh, sorry, you know, that's not my area. In fact, that to me sounds more like an excuse. We should have taken this by the horns early on, and then um, apply uh, UX principles to everything we're trying to do in identity. And so um to give you an example, you know, part of what I, you know, I've been evangelizing both here at ADP and in the industry, you know, I have spoken at the Identiverse about passwordless and how we got we, we can get there, uh, way before spider really had all these milestones that they they uh they have now achieved. Uh but the point is, you know, I almost have to um really change the mindset. You know, we have to embrace this discipline of thinking with empathy. we thinking about the user and how the user struggles or succeeds in, in, in their interactions. And, you know, identity is just an enabling step to get to the user to a destination. So, it's not a destination in itself. It needs to come in and out quickly. Um, and so, I, I look at uh, you know ways to communicate this, and, and one metaphor I normally use is this thing. You know, I, I coined at ADP a phrase or an name for uh, a disease called passworditis. And so, passworditis is this disease that you can get if you abuse your life is consumed by forgetting and remembering and trying to guess passwords so you can get to the systems you need. And so, a proliferation of passwords is an explosion of this this passworditis, you know, and, and some of the side effects include that your passwords most likely get compromised and stolen, and then therefore they will be replayed and you will be a victim of identity theft and so forth. And it's been really, really uh, useful to, to explain it in this sense so that, you know, both folks that live in and out in the identity space, but also folks that are outside of the identity space can understand, you know, the pain point and, and, and metaphoric uh, connotation of, of, of passwords. And now, more recently, I would say that pastors become the herpes of the identity space. All right, so if you, <laughs> if you, if you, for a moment pause, you know, for this metaphor is, is is quite powerful. You know, when you think about this, you know, when um, when you think about herpes, you know, they, they basically exist. You learn to live with them. You accept them. You know that if your immune system is a little low, then they will, you know, they would explode, and then you see rashes and things like that. But it's just the way it is, you know. And so I think the same goes with the way we think about passwords. You know, we just accept them for what they are, live with the consequences and the side effects of having them, but we haven't frontally attacked them and, and realized that they just need to go. They actually do a lot more harm than they do good. In that, in the world of today there is no excuse to continue to rely on it. You know, uh, some of our developers, I say if you're building a new application, do not spend any time whatsoever um, in in any part of the application, developing capabilities to manage passwords, you know, and then forgot password. And then you have to do QA and pen testing and, and, and all of those things around the password functionality save up all of that development cycle and apply it to making the product experience better and just you know, enable your application to accept, say, a SAML or an OpenID and auth token and let the authentication problem be solved some other way. But that is a mindset change. The technology already exists. Um, many of us are just programmed to take this for granted. You know, The passwords are here to stay and that's the only way it is. Well, Frank, I think you just
1: topped Cal's move. <laughs> i <I'm> for <just, laughs> sort of like herpes yeah I, that one is that's classic right there yeah I, I, I
2: honestly i mean you you think about the 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 powerful right when whenever you get a herpes or, or something like that you would realize oh frank just said something about that um anyway but uh but i you asked me another part of what you asked me in the question there is uh, what am i doing and you know for us this is quite fundamental you know one of the things um like i was saying then I started my career in implementation, sales, and engineering, moving to product management. And right at the time of identity, I pivoted into cloud and more of an identity service provider. IDAS was the term we use, identity as a service. Um, at ADP, my team manages a platform that enables access and identity for our external facing products. So it's quite large operation, north of 40 million identities um, and you know, if you know anything about ADP, we pay one in six workers in 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 the U.S., and so we cannot afford to be down. We're obviously a target for anything that that, that goes awry in the internet, and so we have to constantly be looking at you know how we keep ahead of of, of the, the bad guys. How do we enhance the experience for the for the good guys? In One of the things we found is, you know, I can give you a lot of very, very deterministic data um, as to how problematic this is. You know, when you think about, uh, you know, quantifiable uh, say, development hours that go into uh, enhancing password policies or enforcing different password complexities and dictionaries and then testing and then auditing. In all of that time that we could just literally just wipe out and reinvest into more uh, value creation uh, within the platform. Then look at uh, the cost of just password calls, password support. And you know we have been in a journey for the last five years where almost everybody in the team, um, is staring at a dashboard that talks about the costs and the trend of all those password calls so that we can see them go down to zero. Now, over the last few years, we've done some experiments internally. And so uh, passwordless isn't just something we're talking about, it's something we're actually doing. So um, from our perspective, you, again, if you deprogram yourself uh, from this notion that passwords need to exist and that you need them to manage access or establish um, who who someone is, you can start then looking at it in a different way. Um, First, for example, for us um, federated access is a way to eliminate passwords so we don't have to worry about authenticating users if we trust someone else doing that and whether they use passwords or not to authenticate that's no longer our problem we agree to trust that authentication and allow the user in and so right by you know investing in making the federation experience better more integrated more secure we eliminate passwords and we've seen that every time we in our world, we um, federate a client. Um, we are looking at something in the vicinity of sixty-five to seventy percent password call volume reduction, just like that. Um, but in addition to that, Jim, we we've um, we manage a number of different personas, and so uh, some of them require a financial grade uh, assurance because you know it's it's uh, related to uh, either your own pay. Or, or payroll in general, or, or healthcare—you or, know—very sensitive information. But there are other levels of assurance that we manage. And so, candidates, for example, people looking for jobs, do not require the same level of assurance. And so, we have done experiments with that demographic here at ADP. And so, we have uh, offer various flavors of passwordless options um, today in our recruiting platforms. Candidates don't have to register; they simply use either. Their prefer social credential like LinkedIn or Facebook or Gmail, um, or we give an option to have a one time password be sent to them on a channel that that uh, that they register with. In that is passwordless, right in there. And so we have seen the effects of all of this. So uh, some of our interesting findings, you know, some of this non intuitive, not not that intuitive to me at least, is that when you put um, I don't know if you've seen that show. Uh, it was man versus something. There was a show on Discovery Channel. It was a man versus bear, man versus dolphin, or whatever. So here we have social media or social credentials versus one-time passwords. And let me tell you that based on our experience, one-time passwords win by a landslide. People prefer them, um, at least in our experience, to the tune of about ninety percent of the time. And um, it has been very, very interesting. So. Based on that experience, we've polished and we tuned the user experience, and we're now bringing passwordless more and more into the higher assurance levels of the of the uh, the personas that we protect. And so now we're exploring at employee level access and continuing to to bring that discipline of you know let's experiment, let's measure, and then go forward. But let me tell you, passwordless is a reality. Um, it is it's no longer a technology
0: question, in my opinion. It's really a mindset change. So you mentioned that it's not a technology issue. And I think there's a lot of organizations that want to go passwordless, but are stuck maybe in this mode of multiple applications that are not connecting to you know any type of shared authentication system or anything like that. And it, it probably took some time to get to the state where you're at right now where you're actually able to reap the benefits of of the of the you know one time passers and patchless type approach, um, how long did it take you to set the organization up to be where you are today? Yeah, good question. And, and to be honest, Jeff, this uh, you're right. This was not
2: something that happened overnight. We actually had to spend a lot of time doing all the preparing, really, all the uh, all the different uh, maturity levels that we needed to reach. Say our UX research, our UX design, all of our methodologies to make sure that we incorporated that into the process, and then at the same time, uh, a, a, a significant amount of time went into evangelizing, um, getting buy-in. You know, this is not something that people are used to or uh, easily absorb, and so we had to, you know, evangelize. So a lot of a lot of that, and it has taken, you know, a few years. I'll say you know, north of three years for us to get to to the point we're in now where um, the blog I published, by the way, I published it last week internally. Uh, it's called, The Pastor is Dead, Long Live the Person. And you know, it goes through this journey that we went through and how I, I see it. I see it now, um, I think the final step in this journey, the, the, the milestone that convinced me that it's just literally a matter of mindset change and and I'll say, breaking out or eradicating inertia is when FIDO two came out and web authentication was, uh, you know, was became basically a, a standard that is now widely used The browsers. In I think early this year, we saw the announcement from Apple that they'll support FIDO in their devices as well. And so to me, that is just a declaration that that we were hoping would come at some point to uh, to declare them dead. So now it's all it's upon all of us to take the action. To do it, you know, it's, it's the antidote exists. Uh, let's just, you know, make use of it now.
1: Frank, you mentioned um, people having a affinity toward one-time passwords and they're ubiquitous, right? I mean, it's, it's used so often, it's so easy to use. Um, there is some misguidance in terms of, it's maybe not the most secure out-of-band way to um, authenticate somebody you know, especially compared to authenticator apps and QR codes and and the, the like. You also mentioned the level of assurance kind of mindset or framework. Um, and I'm wondering, do you, in your mind, organize it in that way that uh, one-time passwords are good enough for certain populations, yet other populations are going to, to force this more, I don't want to call it heavy-handed, but more secure uh, way of doing things. Yeah, so
2: we we've been thinking about this in a more, I'll say granular way. So we use assurance and we actually follow the NIST eight hundred sixty-three guidelines as much as we can to kind of divvy up the world. But even within the assurance levels, Jim, there are um, you know, I'll say nuances and different granularities. Uh, so a one-time code sent to a text, you know, via text to a cell phone is far more secure than one sent to an email. You know, we can go into the details that would support that claim, but um, you know, it's a one-time code uh, and is a, a factor of authentication. But they're not necessarily standing at the same footing when it comes to assurance. Um, you mentioned QR code authenticators, etc. And some of them, again, have different different degrees of assurance, but also different levels of friction to the end user. Uh, we did a study. Uh UX, uh, I remember our designers, it was a very interesting uh, study. We had uh, come up with a QR code uh, authentication flow that would marry the device to the browser. And this is going back four years. We, we even had uh, a patent on that design. I think that patent, it's still pending. Um, but the point there is we, we were very proud of that innovation. We, we then decided to put it through the test. And we found something very interesting. We found that um, people would still prefer a one-time code or the QR code experience because the effort required for a frequent user to go pull out their phone, um, line it up in the screen in front of the browser, scan the code, and then you know, touch on their screen whatever they needed to, to, say, the biometric authentication or whatnot, was far greater than just getting the code and typing it in. And so we learned that usability, you know, UX informants that that wasn't going to be a winner, and we put that in the back burner. Same goes for other types of authentication. So um, uh, the, the UX discipline in us would force you to test them, compare them, figure out which ones work for what type of user, and then you can optimize even within the same level of
1: assurance. I think that you brought out one topic earlier, Frank, which I wanted to touch on. I didn't want to let it fly by too too much without picking on it a little bit, because you talked about um, the password and the idea that people were these chronic resetters of passwords. And I've worked for a company that is an ADP customer for a long time. And so I've accessed ADP portals. And I think that one of the things you've maybe ADP has recognized is that we have to have strong password policies, right? We can't let you just use a weak password and so we're going to have a strong policy, and um, therefore, you know, it's something like, I've re- we remember your last 26 passwords, and of course, not the same password that, not on the same cycle that my corporate network password is on, so it's different, I forget it every time if I'm not using a password safe, so i become one of those chronic resetters, but I guess the point I'm trying to point out here is that there's a there's a tug of war between Going with a weak password policy that people will remember, or going with a, pa- a strong password policy, and then people become chronic resetters. And really, is your security any better? So, the, the bottom line is it's, there's like no way to make the password really that strong. Yeah, this is a lose lose, Jim. And, and like I said, the, the point is that if we continue
2: to perpetuate passwords, we'll always spend and waste time debating these things. You know, I think NIST published, um, or yeah, it was I think it was NIST that they plot published, you know, just, just use passphrase, you know, 32 character long passwords that never expire are statistically better than any any complex password that you know that you want to enforce on people. And and that's it. If you really want to stick to passwords, then go that way and don't waste any more time. But the reality is that you gotta really think about the usability spectrum and then look for a pattern that optimizes security and convenience. And then you will find that passwords do not meet that criteria. Now, what is interesting, Jim, to give you another example, beyond passwords, just to get into the the, the point of balancing convenience and security, is we talk about two-factor authentication. And I think people think about, well, if I just deploy two password, two-factor authentication to all of my users, I achieve a great degree of security and I would mitigate all this risk. Yes, correct, you probably will. But at the same time, you're imposing a lot of friction on your end users. Now it's not only username, password, it's another factor that they have to deal with. So the question is, do you really need to impose two-factor authentication all the time at the beginning of the session? Or are you better off looking for a simpler authentication experience? And then later on in in the session, let's say if you need to do something more sensitive, then step up the user. You know, that's still technically two-factor, but the friction is moderated or regulated to when you need it. Um, and then another discussion we're having internally, and, you know, again, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe turn this into a question for you guys, is that I think the industry has been trained to think about two-factor always as in something you do during login, you know, at the beginning of your session, and always password first and then another factor. Okay. And then in some cases you would say, well, password first, then let's do some risk check. You know, is this a device that we know? Uh, maybe this is something we remember, and then decide whether or not to have the second factor. But it's always password first, some evaluation in the middle, and then another factor. I submit to everyone. And if you want to, you know, go through the UX research, et cetera, you know, please do. But if you just simply take that equation and reverse the order where the first step is a passwordless channel, you know, password passwordless method, um, already most likely is gonna have a higher assurance that passwords, pretty much anything is more secure than a password anyway. Um, and then the, the risk check that you would do in the middle most likely will result in not needing that second step or that second factor. And so you end up effectively in a passwordless experience for
0: everybody. So now let's now let's get really radical and talk about you know on top of that maybe even continuous authentication right keyboard dynamics um, you know or keyboard stroke you know however you however you know what phraseology you want to use for it um, I think it's interesting to talk about how someone logs in because yeah the you know the process is password then MFA if you don't have a password um, and you are using A passwordless experience. By default, it may also already be password or may already be multi factor because if you're getting a one time password via SMS to your phone, you probably had your phone locked, which meant you used either, you know, Touch ID, Face ID, you know, the Android equivalents um, to log into that. So you proved who you are to get the, you know, password that you would need then to log in. So it's already covering both of those. I think the question then becomes, how far do you take that authentication? Is it, like you said, at the very beginning, and then that's it, and then your session's good for however many minutes, hours, right, you you, you define? Um, or do you want to incorporate things like continuous authentication to um, to help make sure that the person logged in is still the logged in, you know, is, is still the person that they think they are? Any thoughts on continuous authentication? Yeah, I, I think continuous authentication
2: is an example of improving security and convenience, right there. Because you will look for ways to minimize friction if you if you don't need to apply that friction and then apply it when you feel you need it. I think that's doing, you know, here you have the machine or the computer doing the effort and not the end user. And so that to me is the right equation. I think continuous authentication without overloading the term is a good area for us to optimize for. But there are other areas, you know, so we we obviously spent a lot of time here uh, talking about passwords um, and authentication. But if you were to look at other aspects of the identity lifecycle, like for example, verifying someone's identity during registration, there are other possibilities to make the process, again, more secure and more convenient. Um, We've done experiments in this space too. And, you know, one of the experiments that, that I presented at Identiverse a couple of years ago is a partnership we have with another bank, uh, with with a a partner bank of ADP. And so, in this equation, if you happen to have an account with that bank, during registration into our system, we allow you to authorize that bank to verify your identity on your behalf. And so, you can sign in with that bank credential that you probably know because you use it every day, allow them to then vet the identity information we need to complete the process. And you complete it within 30 seconds, as opposed to, as opposed to say six clicks or so. And so the, the way to think about this, so continuous authentication um, and, and you know, two-factor authentication, et cetera, is to always push for how can you improve convenience and security on behalf of that end user. And so that the effort is done mostly by the computer and less so by the end user, I don't know if I answer your question, Jeff, or actually just butcher it all together.
0: No, absolutely. And I think it goes right into right that that consumer mindset. Right when it comes to identity and access management, the user experience needs to be good because, like you know, a water around a rock, people are going to find a way to get around poor experiences as much as they can, and ultimately that drives you know up risk and down the security posture of an organization. So when we talk about consumer mindset, it's not necessarily external consumers, but it's also your internal workforce, right? They, they use your services just as much, if not more than, than um, maybe external users as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's empathy at the same time. So, you know, you might have use cases. I'll give you a very classic use case for us. You have clocks, uh, that, you know, if you go to say a restaurant or um, a place where people are, uh, you know, hourly workers, there's typically going to be a clock where they punch in, punch out. If you have to authenticate and you need two-factor, every time that happens, you're adding friction, literally taking time, productivity time, out of that worker so they can log in and punch. You want that to be secure, but very convenient, very frictionless. And so biometrics fits the bill in that case. Yeah,
1: I think that one of the things that would... Be the most frustrating uh, elements of a user experience from a consumer standpoint is if you hit a dead end, something where oh now I now I have to pick up the phone and and call somebody or I need to pull somebody in for assistance. So I think you know self service is a, a critical area of that consumer mindset. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think we we all should
2: the, the line between consumer and enterprise in my mind get very blurry you know and so the idea of bringing concepts of work in the consumer space into the enterprise uh, makes perfect sense to me again another another effort to bring more convenience not necessarily at the expense of security into the enterprise
1: yeah and um a a big driving force right now is also you know privacy and consent and i'm imagining that at edp this is front and center with everything you do Um, how do you You know, manage um, that that process and and uh, make it so that the consumer feels. You know, again, I think it's a balance of um, convenience and security. But also, it's I make this analogy a lot. If I go to a bank and they don't have multi-factor authentication, sure, I'm I'm expecting multi-factor authentication from my bank. And if you don't have that, I'm thinking you're not going to be very secure with my data from privacy consent standpoint, I feel like if you don't have some way for me to manage my privacy settings so that they're transparent and it's not, you know, read this 10-page document to understand our privacy statement. So I'm wondering kind of what um, your thoughts are there in terms of applying this consumer mindset to uh, privacy consent and how can practitioners who are listening kind of um, take that into account with their Uh, With their projects. Good question, Jim.
2: And you know, this is uh, interesting. I, I, in preparation to this uh, recording, this session with you guys, I actually listened to the episode with Eve Maller on um, on this very topic consent. I think it was user managed access, Um, and it it was very, very. uh, In my opinion, it was a very good discussion on, on on the virtues of doing that upfront. I think, Jim, it's not only that you have to comply. You know, As a provider, you have certain regulations, certain liability um, for protecting the data that, that, that you're the custodian of. And you have to show, you have to earn the trust. But I think it's also about transparency. You know, So what kind of relationship do you want to have with the end user? So in, in today's world, if you manage anything that's sensitive, um, any information that's sensitive to the end user, you have an obligation to be transparent about that, and to the extent that you can, then give that end user the ability to manage, to dictate, to, to be smart about how they want to consent or not. Um, and so, if I recall correctly, I think that um, what was stuck with me from your discussion with Eve was that she said approach it in a similar way as you would approach the authorization problem, you know. And I feel like that is the right that's the right mindset here. So consent is nothing but another means to authorize something to take place. And you want to inform the inform the party that's making the authorization decision uh, of what they're authorizing so they can make it. Um, now, I'll tell you, consent, privacy, uh, and all this framework is, in my opinion, something that's fast evolving. And so if you hardwire this into your application, then it would be really hard for you to make it more flexible as the frameworks continue to evolve. We have GDPR, and then there's the California Privacy Act, and then now you have TCPA, and and you have the uh, biometrics regulation in Illinois and other states. And so this is really bound to evolve. And so either by regulation or by use case, you have to think about consent as a dynamic framework that you need to, to factor into your experience and make sure that you are transparent to the end user, so you can you can maintain trust. You can gain
0: trust. So, with all of these different privacy concerns, laws, regulations, et cetera, and trying to manage this, uh, you know, across your different services, whether they're on prem or cloud or even some type of hybrid approach, you know, how do you how do you approach this from a technology perspective when it comes to finding the right technology fits to achieve? these goals but keeping all that in mind.
2: Right, right. I think Jeff, it's not an easy question. Um I'll say let's look for you know first degree principles that perhaps you know have been proven over time that can help us tackle a complex problem like that. You know, one would be to make sure that some of these core functions are not hardwired into your applications, but that can be externalized. And so whether you're developing or you're implementing a technology from a third party, you want to make sure that those applications those platforms have the ability to externalize identity and that gives you an opportunity to now layer in different frameworks so you can have different authentication experiences that essentially are completely external from the application so the application doesn't have to change similarly you could apply a same the same principle to how you manage consent you know do you do you invoke this Um, at the point in which you're about to make a transaction or allow the user to make a transaction. Do you do this upfront when the person just first registers? You have to think through that. But the idea is that by externalizing some of this capability, some of this functionality, you have a better opportunity to handle them and handle handle them in in a go forward basis. Because as you know, these frameworks are bound to change, bound to evolve in, you don't want to be hardwiring this into every platform that you that you manage or you have to integrate.
1: I, th- I guess you take that into account every time you think about, okay, do we buy or build a technology? I think when it comes to a lot of the passwordless technologies, it, it would be insane to try to, for, for an individual company that's not in the business of identity and access management, to try to build a passwordless technology, right? It's something that you'd Want to look for a, a cloud-based service if possible? Yeah, I mean there are many. Uh, I'll say you know that's sometimes
2: uh, somewhat philosophical, Jim. There are arguments in favor and against, um, but I think the principle is still um, holding, and that is you know you externalize a function, and now that function can be hosted in the cloud, can be hosted on premise, in or in a hybrid environment. But um, you're right in that you know it doesn't make sense. I'll say in many cases. It's, it's just commodity in a way that you know you don't have to build the authentication technology um, you can just plug it in. Um, an example uh, with you know with the smartphones supporting biometrics so you know so commonly um, and, and so vastly available out there, you can just simply pivot on the mobile device, to provide two-factor or passwordless login into your application. And that simplifies a lot of, you know, you don't need a whole lot of technology to, um, to implement a push notification or, or a text message OTP. Um, you can actually develop a lot if you needed to. But the point is that you're externalizing the capability. You're you're plugging that into the app. It's not hardwired.
0: So when it comes to the end, I'm a big fan of, you know, the smartphone as an authentication factor, but one of the challenges that I see with that is this mindset of, you know, not necessarily on the customer side, but more on the internal side of things, employees, et cetera, where there's this thought process that, well, if the company is making me use my cell phone to authenticate, then they should pay for it. Mm -hmm. you come across that? Do you have thoughts about that? Uh, you know, right, wrong, and different. Um, what do you think?
2: So, Jeff, this is a very interesting point. And, and yes, we come across. As a matter of fact, there are labor uh, laws. I think in the state of California that actually make this uh, a bargaining point in in, in you know labor uh, related negotiations. So, I've been firsthand involved in situations where you know workers would say, "Well, if you if you require me." To have a cell phone so that i can do my job then you may as well just pay for it right which is extremely it's it's absolutely valid so so there is that argument that that therefore you have to you you have to offer other options so that's a very real um scenario but we also did some research and and what is interesting is this you know so at some point we we were faced with that constraint so you cannot assume that you can use the person's um, mobile uh, device to, to do authentication. So we went out and we did research and so just to find out what is, what is the feasibility of assuming that a cell phone will be available and what's the likelihood of someone would consent to using it for this purpose? And it turns out it's overwhelmingly positive in that sense. So we found that most people, so here's an interesting study. We found that most people not only have a cell phone that they're willing to use for this type of uh, scenarios. But in many cases, they have more than one. They may have one for, for their work and one personal. And if they ever leave the house, this is interesting, if you ever leave the house, say in route to your office, and you realize you forgot your phone, you will immediately go back and and you know pick it up and, and return. But if you actually forgot your wallet, you will still make it without your wallet. So that is how powerful the affinity between the person and the device is today. Now, when it comes to is this something that the person can opt in? Um, what we found through our research is that yeah, most people would opt in because they see it as a benefit. And so, it gets a little blurry because in the context of enterprise, you know, you have to deal with you know perhaps regulation legislation that 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 could be interesting in terms of uh, you know what you're as an employer. Uh, enforcing them, what's your obligation? But the reality is that if you interrogate the end users, there's more willingness to do it. So maybe there is a compromise that can be
1: drawn. So Frank, I find it fascinating that you're able to go out and do all this research and kind of come back with this data. I'm sure that helps you in making an ROI case for the investments. the like LAKDP when you're making IM investments, there are they're huge, right? They're in terms of dollars. So you you have to be able to come back and show a return on investment. And I'm wondering if you could kind of share your approach to that. Is it just, hey, the, when you talk about the user experience and improving the user experience, your leadership kind of gets it, or are you still having to make the you know make the show that you know the these dollars are going to return additional dollars in sales or things like that? So it's been a
2: maturity curve for us, uh, Jim. You're right, and, and by the way, we—I would say that's another function or another part of the job that, that that we have to master. And I would say that's true for any any practitioner. You have to think about the business side. What's the ROI? You know, what's the business outcome of what you're doing so that can justify the investment in the technology. But you know, we we talked earlier about the password for call volume, so we have very specific metrics as to how much that costs, and so a very easy. To quantify that, but there are other metrics. Jim, we we look at things like abandonment um, or conversions, and you can easily extrapolate the potential revenue, the potential um, added benefit in user satisfaction. You know things that can be measured um, when you improve. And so we have over the years really learned to focus on those and show them as um, as you know as our objectives are as our outcomes that drive the investment. Obviously, in security, you also have the card of well, if something bad happens, right? If you you have an audit or a liability or a fraud case, um, then you have to react, and that that is also another way you can you can position your investment. The reality is, I prefer to be on the on the side of you know let's do this proactively in a way that creates value, as opposed to reactively because we have to plug you know, something that you know, was catastrophic or, or an incident or something like that. Um, and so even with fraud, you know, we are looking at the effect of two factor in reducing overall fraud. And so the incidence of cases relative to the adoption of STEP-UP, it's something that we can correlate and then justify additional investments in STEP-UP as an example. I think we all have to spend time as practitioners in this space, because you know you can't just simply ask for funding to continue to roll out technologies that may or may not necessarily contribute to more security or more convenience. You have to have
0: numbers to really make that argument. I couldn't agree more, and I know you've been most generous with your time. Uh, before we wrap up here, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to kind of throw out there for for folks who are listening, especially if they're kind of considering passwordless? You know, how how they can maybe get started if the, if they're looking to start that journey? Yeah, so my my thinking overall, and
2: this is you know a journey that has taken, like I said, a couple of decades at least, is that when you come through the identity space, you normally start at a technology centric point, either as an engineer, as a standard, or some some sort of technology, um, you know, entry point into the into the domain. But we all have to spend our time graduating. And learning about UX, and so I think that a lot of us have, uh, I think, room to grow. I thought, well, put myself in that category. That this to me came late in my career. I'll say over the last maybe, you know, five six years is when I would properly speak about UX in the terms that I think I do now. And if I had a recommendation to my colleagues in the industry, is make sure that you spend the time understanding UX. You know, how do you do research? What's a usability versus a concept research? And apply that intrinsically to what you're doing. Always think about the user experience. You know, think about this from the perspective
1: of the end user. Keep it simple. Yeah, very thought provoking.
0: Jim, anything else that you want to bring up before we uh, call it for this week? So Frank, I, I've mentioned uh,
1: your, your one of your catchphrases, cows moo. And I'm sure you, there are, I, I know there are plenty of others and some of them are not fit for uh, young years, but maybe you can give everyone, what is cows moo? <laughs> well, cows
2: moo was uh, a phrase we used at some point in one of, I think it was uh, in an advisory engagement at Identropy a few years back that, you know, we, we were talking about how, you know, Vendors would solve certain problems in how certain technologies are, you know, are used to attack problems, but then they lock you in, you know, they basically force you to now, okay, you have to stay with that vendor platform, etc. And so what we were telling customers is, look, you don't want to take a vendor and replace your identity strategy in you know with the vendor strategy that that is not going to happen and then come back and complain that well you know the experience or we have this uh, we didn't realize our outcomes or it didn't quite fit our business model because cows move and so that you know vendors do what they have to do but they don't need to understand your business and so it was it was sort of a, a metaphor to explain that you know you, if you leave things for what they are you may not end up in the uh in the space you want, because they, by nature, would do what they what they are accustomed to. And so it's hard to break a habit. And I think it's important, in that scenario we were talking about, it's important that you take ownership in, you know, cows move, vendors are gonna do what they do. They wanna, uh, you know, obviously make you successful with that platform, but it doesn't mean you have to surrender your, your ownership of the direction and strategy.
0: Cows move, pastors of the herpes, the identity space. I think that's my favorite one so far. <laughs> That might be the teaser.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there is one that made me very famous
0: at Identropy. And like Jim
2: said, I can't really say it you know, for a PG-13. But there is this movie, Pulp um, fiction, you know, Quentin Tarantino's movie, probably yours. And then there is this character called Mr. Wolf, Winston Wolf. And that scene where he comes in to rescue the, the, you know, the, the bad guys um, has a very interesting line. Um, that I use a lot at Identropy. And it was sort of, the intent was, you know, don't go celebrate victory or declare victory too early. You know, be, be quiet, you know, be, be very patient before you before you celebrate. So because the actual phrase was so offensive, we just shortened it to say Mr. Wolf. So we all knew what we were talking about.
1: <laughs> yeah, we had to have clean versions of, of a lot of things. So a lot of the culture lines were like GSD. The clean version was get stuff done. You can probably everybody out there knows what it really means, but we don't want to, we don't have to say it here. But, you know, that, that's one of the things, Frank, that you've really brought. And I wonder, are you have you kept that passion for corporate culture? I mean, is that something that you're still trying to drive even at ADP? Yeah, yeah. In fact, Jim, I think that
2: um, if anything, I've gotten a little more comfortable with that. Um, to the degree I I was telling you that I I spent a lot of my time evangelizing. So I'll I'll share this anecdote within ADP. We have this um, annual conference that we do every year. Um, It's for ADP executives across the globe. And every area then gets a slot about, it's like a TED Talk. Think about that as a TED Talk where everybody gets like 15 minutes to to talk about their area, their vision, the success or um, their future uh, plans and so on. And so last October was my turn. I, I, I was given the opportunity to present. So I was thinking hard about how to do this. And my topic was breaking up with passwords. That's the name of the, the slide. And so, you know, you couldn't have picked a most boring topic for anyone to talk about. But what I decided to do is I wrote a sketch and I hire improv actors. And so we deliver this presentation where I'm speaking as if I'm doing a corporate presentation. And then all of a sudden I get hijacked and the thing goes awry. And it was it was a comedy sketch. And the plot was that, you know, people create passwords based on people that they remember. And so my password was Rosita123, which was my high school girlfriend's name. And so she was in the audience and she was saying, you cannot break up with me. And that sketch was extremely funny Uh, To the degree that now everybody talks about, you know, when I'm giving any presentation at ADP, people ask me, is Rosita coming with you?
0: (laughs) So creative. If we ever get back to something in in person, I think you should probably pitch that to the folks over at Identiverse maybe for the next uh, on-site conference as one of the... uh one of the keynotes. I know that would be a lot more interesting than maybe some of the, the drier talks that, that we're probably both familiar with. Good suggestion. With that, I think we're going to go ahead and close it out for this week. Frank, really appreciate your time and, you know, very happy you're able to to carve some out and, and talk with Jim and I. Um, where can folks get a hold of you um, open on LinkedIn or do you have some other mechanism if, if people want to reach out and, and chat with you? Yeah. LinkedIn is
2: perhaps the easiest. I'm very active and I, I try to, um, be um, I would say accessible and, and and connected to the to the industry, and so you can definitely reach out to me that way. Probably the best social channel for me.
1: Frank, are you going to publish the blog uh, uh, "Eradicating Passwords" anywhere that people who are listening could access it at some point? That's a good suggestion,
2: Jim. I the content has to be curated to make sure that I don't reveal anything that would be sensitive to ADP. But let me think about that, and maybe I'll post the essence of it, because um, just to give you a sense of, uh, I, I have the blog right in front of me and I'll just read to you that um, the uh, the opening line makes a reference to Nietzsche, the philosopher, German philosopher, and talked about how in ex- ex- existentialism, you have to elevate as a human. And so that is the opening line for the blog. We have to understand that healing the pastor actually elevates us as humans. Um, but so there's a lot of content here
0: that I think can be reposted. So I have
2: to think about that. Maybe
0: that's a good challenge. That's probably another reason to connect with Frank on uh, LinkedIn, because I'm sure you'll post something there if, if, if and when that, that comes up for public consumption, right? Yeah. Okay. And what I'll do is in the show notes, I'll put a link to Frank's profile if you want to connect with him, uh, as well as a link to... Uh, the uh, IDSA um, presentation or webinar that's happening uh, next week uh, for folks to check out. Um, you can always connect with uh, Jim and I on LinkedIn as well, and we're at identitythescenter.com. And we're also at IDAC podcast on Twitter, uh, where we are trying to be more active with that. So, with that, we'll go ahead and close it out for this week. And thank everybody for listening, and we'll talk with you all in the next one. Listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. For more episodes, visit identityatthecenter.com.